Thank you to Jack Patty of WBLK 590 AM Talk Radio there in Lexington for having me on his show as a guest uh, Monday morning. Really appreciated that. Appreciate the uh, efforts of Veterans for Responsible Leadership, that's VFRL, to publish uh, my uh, Substack piece on uh, Russia's uncertain future and either their newsletter or they're going to they're gonna link it to their uh, their national site. So I really appreciate the, the opportunity uh for that uh, the Substack piece of Kentucky Caliber is fairly new, and uh, I'm going to try to we're going to aim for publishing at least one um, one essay or one piece a week. And last week's piece was titled "Russia's Uncertain Future," and you can find that on Substack.com uh, or just Substack slash Kentucky Caliber. If you just go to Substack and type in Kentucky Caliber on their search feature, uh, my picture should come right up, and uh, you can just click on it. It's free. And uh, you can read that piece if you want uh, for some more in-depth um, analysis on the situation uh, that we saw happen in Russia last week. Um, we got to talk about that a little bit on the uh, the Jack Patty show uh, on WBLK 590 AM Monday morning. Uh, that was the 30-minute show, which is which is fine. That's what we wanted because there's there's still so many unknowns uh, with that situation that it's it's difficult to do a, a really long um, long-term or rather a, a much longer discussion about it. But uh, as time goes on, I think that will become uh, more possible. And I also wanted to say thank you to General Hurtling this morning for his uh, thoughtful comments on my Substack piece. I really appreciate that. Um, he pointed out some, uh, he made some good points, and I wanted to try to answer a couple of those um, as we go through the show today, because that, that's what I really wanted to talk about was the, um, the situation in Russia. And, and what do we even call it? You know, a lot, I know a lot of folks have seen it either on television or online and, and the first thing about the situation in Russia last uh, last weekend is what do we even call it uh, was it a coup was it a rebellion was it a mutiny was it just an uprising um, that's very much still in play so I don't think there's a consensus yet on even what to call it my my take is it's closer to a mutiny than it is to a, an actual coup attempt uh, though although I think had it had the uh, the armed group continued all the way to Moscow. It, it certainly would have, it would have been much harder to characterize it that way. Um, you know, when it, when when an armed group of mercenaries uh, put your capital under siege, it's hard to call that anything other than a coup. But they stopped before they got to Moscow. Um, they actually backed off, and we'll get to that in just a minute. So those are, I think, some some historic events that happened in Russia this weekend. And even though it was it was a fairly short-lived event, it was still significant. And I think the consequences of that will resonate uh, quite a bit. Um, in my Substack piece, I referenced a book that I read a long time ago. Um, it's called One Soldier's War by Arkady Babchenko, who served, excuse me, in the Russian military in Chechnya in the uh, mid-90s, I think either 95 or 96 uh, is when he was actually deployed to Chechnya. And some of the things that he wrote about are very important and significant and relevant to the events that are happening uh, in Russia right now. And Babchenko described um, a situation where you had uh, military units who, 
in his words, uh, quote, everyone in this regiment hates everyone else. And the unit was poorly trained. It was poorly led. It was poorly equipped. Um, soldiers didn't have not only enough ammunition and training, but even lacked basic necessities like uniform parts and boots, uh, enough food to eat. So they were sent to Chechnya, and they weren't prepared for it. And when they got there, uh, by his description, that, that disorganization, that disorder, and all the chaos and corruption within the Russian military system itself obviously made it very hard for Russia to achieve many of its stated aims at the time in Chechnya. And so if you fast forward to today, when you listen to the, uh, the Telegram video that was posted by uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who is the, uh, ostensibly the leader of the Wagner mercenary group, although I, I'm hesitant to really say that because you know exactly how that group works um, is not really well known. It's, it's more like a network of many different groups operating together, and he seems to be more like the spokesman or the money man so to call him the commander of the Wagner Group might be a stretch, but at least it, it appears that way. And so for now, we'll, we'll just have to go with that. Um, but it seems pretty clear that the members of the group do listen to him. And his comments that he made on Telegram, which is a, uh, an app that you can get on, download online, it's very popular amongst Russia speakers. It's popular in, in Russia itself. It's popular in Ukraine. More people use Telegram there than use Facebook here. I mean, as a percentage, it's just more popular there. Um, and so he had a video there in which he, he stated that um, the Russian military's actual mission in uh, Ukraine is not to denazify or demilitarize the regime, but rather to enrich uh, members of the Russian senior command and the Russian general staff. And so that's, that's a very public criticism of Putin himself, and it's a, a very uh, direct repudiation of Putin's stated war aims for the Russian military in Ukraine. The, that would have by itself been, you know, pretty extraordinary, but it, it became even more extraordinary when the when armed members of the Wagner Group actually followed uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, as we as it appears to have happened, towards uh, into Russia itself. So they left the Ukrainian theater where they were fighting, and they went into Russian territory, starting at Rostov-on-Don, which is down in the southern part of uh, Russia, and it's a key logistics hub. A lot of the Russian military operations in Ukraine rely on that as a, a conduit for supplies. So it's, it's very significant from a military standpoint to Russian operations there. And so the fact that he chose to go to Rostov-on-Don and was apparently, you know, at least by some members of the Russian military, greeted with open arms, um, even after President Putin had ordered the Russian military to stop the Wagner Group uh, march and, or drive, rather, towards Moscow, apparently that didn't happen. So that's another extraordinary event. Uh, the public criticism of Putin coming from uh, Prigozhin is, is, is pretty remarkable. The fact that Russian military units did not try to stop uh, the Wagner Group's march toward Moscow even after Putin told them to is pretty remarkable. And then I think the third most remarkable component of that situation was the fact that Prigozhin called it off after getting you know, fairly close uh, to the Russian capital, only uh, depending on which account that we, uh, we cite, the group uh, made it to within, you know, 200, 250 miles of Moscow itself, which is, that, that's pretty darn close. I mean, if you're, if you're, even if you're just driving a car or in a mechanized vehicle, right, I mean, that's, that's not very far. You're, you're just a few hours' drive from the outskirts of the Russian capital, which, by the way, was put on lockdown and armed troops were deployed around it. So the appearance to the, the civilian population would have been something close to a, a coming siege, uh, which did not transpire. 
And the reasons we think it didn't transpire is because uh, Putin's ally in Belarus, uh, President Lukashenko, brokered a deal with them to, to allow Prigozhin and the Wagner Group to come to Belarus. So they left Russia. They aren't in Russia anymore. At least that's, that's what we think. And, and the, uh, at least for the moment, it appears that the Russian security forces have dropped charges against Prigozhin. I guess that really that will be a fourth amazing uh, event to this because uh, under Russian law, criticizing the, uh, the war in Ukraine or criticizing the stated reasons for Russia's, as they call it, special military operation is illegal. And while ordinary citizens in Russia have been arrested and imprisoned for doing that, uh, the guy who does it publicly then leads an armed revolt against the capital or an armed mutiny against Moscow has the charges dropped. Um, so that's pretty amazing. First, Putin said he was going to punish him, and now it, it, he says he's not going to punish him. So within 24 hours, you had a complete 180 from Russia's president uh, going from we're going to punish this guy to the charges are dropped and all is forgiven. Um, so that's a pretty remarkable change. Why uh, or how the, um, the president of Belarus managed to arrange that, if in fact that's what happened, is not clear. It's certainly not clear to me. What I know about Lukashenko in Belarus is he has been the only president of Belarus since the collapse of the Soviet Union. So we go back to 91 when the Soviet Union collapsed and many of the former satellite countries, uh, among them Belarus and Ukraine, became independent nations. And so at that time, Lukashenko became the president of Belarus and he has been their president ever since. He's always won re-election. He's never lost. Um, he sort of runs the country as their top guy. Um, he has a lot of influence there. You can call it a dictatorship. I'm not familiar enough with the details to really stand behind that claim, uh, although it certainly appears that he operates in a way that's similar to what Putin does uh, in, in Russia uh, from Moscow and the Kremlin. But anyway, so he claims to have known, uh, Lukashenko claims to have known Prigozhin for uh, many, many years, and that's how he was able to convince him to leave. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but that's what the that's what he said publicly, and right now I don't have any information beyond that, or or, or any reason to uh, to believe that that's there's that something else happened. So long story short, the the mutiny, the armed mutiny against uh, Putin's authority, ended almost as quickly as it began. Prigozhin appears to have gone to Belarus, and at least for the moment, the immediate danger um, has passed. But I want to talk about the the repercussions because I think that's really where. Um, the most the most significant part of this uh, re remains to be seen. I don't think it's over in the long term. Um, the fact that the Russian military didn't obey Putin's orders to stop Prigozhin is is huge, um, and it tells you something about the state of discipline and morale within the Russian military. Um, as I wrote in my Substack piece, I think poor morale, poor training and discipline, and, and corruption within the ranks of the Russian military is part of the reason why. Russia has not been as successful in Ukraine as uh, they were expected to be. So if you, if you look at the situation, they had the numbers, they had, they may not have had an element of surprise, but they had the, um, they had numerical superiority, they had Ukraine surrounded on three sides, and uh, they certainly had, had it within their capability to topple the regime in Kyiv and to take control of Ukraine, but that did not happen. Now, a lot of that is due to the, the courage and, and innovation and bravery of the Ukrainian people and their military. Some of it is due to the supplies that their military received from the West. But a part of it, I think, really comes down to the, uh, the corruption and, and poor training and readiness on the part of the Russian military. And I think that's why they weren't able to be successful or, or even anywhere near as successful as we thought they would be 
when the invasion first took place. So what happens now, I think, is really the question that's on everyone's mind. And, and the answer is, I don't know. Nobody knows. Um, it's an unknown what's going to happen as we go forward. But there are some things I think we can, we can say with a fair amount of confidence. The first one is, I think Prigozhin has made a mockery of Russia's laws of uh, forbidding citizens from criticizing uh, the military operations in Ukraine. He did it publicly uh, very in a, in a very direct way. Uh, in addition to leading, you know, armed uh, mercenaries towards Moscow, and nothing happens. Um, so Russia, I think Russian citizens can pretty plainly see that he gets special treatment because he's rich and powerful, and that they don't. So I, I have a feeling that though there will be lasting uh, repercussions for that within Russia itself, uh, simply from that act of defiance, whether or not he succeeded uh, in, in achieving his objectives. We don't really know what his objectives were. Prigozhin himself says he had no intention of trying to take power from Putin or to take over. So in his words, it was not a coup. It was not even a coup attempt. Um, but it's, it's difficult, though, to separate that from the political repercussions and the political fallout that are going to happen from his actions regardless. So he may not have intended it to be a coup, even if we assume for a minute that, that he's telling the truth and he really didn't intend it to be a coup. I think that it's quite possible that the political fallout uh, in Russia will end up making it very, very similar to that uh, anyway. So he may not have wanted a coup, but that may what that may be what ends up happening down the road, uh, regardless, uh, because this kind of you know seismic quake has weakened the foundations of the Russian state. I think certainly in the eyes of the of the Russian people, exposed the uh, hypocrisy and corruption corruption that exists at the very top levels. That's exactly what Arkady Babchenko was talking about in One Soldier's War in Chechnya, which is why I started with that. Um, so that's another failure for Putin himself personally because he spent a lot of time uh, in the past 20 years, a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of effort to reform and modernize Russia's military. Now, some of that has succeeded. They have, they have been successful in modernizing their equipment and getting new and you know, incorporating new technology but it would appear uh, that in Ukraine, some of the old ghosts uh, from, the, from Russia and Chechnya have returned to haunt uh, Putin and the Russian military operation in Ukraine. And so I think that will be something that goes forward. Uh, right now, as you can imagine, the Russian forces uh, in Ukraine can see and hear all of this. And so what their interpretation of that, of his, um, of the recent event was, I don't know, but I suspect that... Um, it resonated with them. I suspect that his comments about the uh, the general staff failing to provide ammunition or get supplies to uh, where they were needed, I suspect those things resonate with rank-and-file Russian soldiers. And I think his comments about the corruption amongst the uh, the elite or the, the senior members of the Russian military resonate with rank-and-file Russian soldiers. And so what that means is I think we have it presents an, uh, an unexpected opportunity for a, uh, a negotiation. I've, I've seen a, uh, another newsletter. This one came out about a week after mine. That was It's called Russian Dissent. Um, and they actually made many of the same points I did about um, calling for a negotiations using the uh, Western shipments of weapons as leverage in those negotiations. So in other words, we can show how serious we are about the negotiations by offering to stop our, our shipments of weapons 
um, for that time, for the duration of the negotiations. Um, I, I appreciate the comments from General Hurtling this morning, and, and his. I, I'm, I'm listening to the perspective that he presented. He thinks that that's a really bad idea, and I'm sure the, the Ukrainian military commanders would, would say the same thing. Uh, no, don't don't stop the uh, the shipment, no matter what. We we've got the Russians on the ropes. Uh, you know, now is the chance for us to finish them off. Um, my question is, you know, for the for the military folks out there, is you know, how confident are you that Ukraine is capable of delivering a knockout blow? to the Russian forces and achieving a clear military victory. Because that's a very different thing from just retaking a few miles of territory. So we can keep up the weapon shipments, we can let, you know, Ukraine continues their attack and maybe they gain back a few miles of territory. I don't think that would be worth passing up an opportunity to negotiate while Ukraine has the upper hand. Because that's when you want to negotiate with Russia. You want to negotiate with Russia while you have the upper hand. And this is that time. So just to abandon that opportunity for a, um, a chance to retake a little bit of territory I don't think will be worthwhile. If, if the military consensus is they think that Ukraine could deliver a knockout blow and, a, and achieve a clear military victory, then I could understand uh, postponing uh, or not having negotiations right now and just letting the uh, field commanders and the Ukrainian military uh, take care of things on the battlefield. I'm not convinced that that's the case. I'm not while, while Ukraine certainly has the upper hand, I think Russia is back on its heels. There's no question about that. Uh, but that's a very different thing from saying we think Ukraine could win this militarily outright uh, in the next you know, six months or year. Um, I'm not confident that that's the case. And if we pass up the uh, opportunity to negotiate, it will be under different conditions. Uh, you know, Ukraine may not have the upper hand six months from now. Ukraine may not have the upper hand three months from now. So uh, an opportunity to negotiate is an advantage for this reason. It's, there's an old adage, I think uh, Sun Tzu once wrote this you know, a couple thousand years ago in his The Art of War, and he wrote, never press a desperate foe too far. Always leave them a way out. And I would argue that peace negotiations are a way out. I'm sure Putin doesn't want it, but I think the Russian army does. And one of the things that this recent incident last weekend showed us is that there is daylight between Vladimir Putin and the Russian army. They are not united uh, together uh, as he would have us believe they are. And so I think negotiations would be a way to further drive open the wedge between him and his own armed forces. So whether or not the negotiations resulted in anything, whether or not there was a peace agreement, whether or not we made any progress, it would still be an asset. It would still be in Ukraine's best interest um, to have negotiations because they would weaken Putin. So I, I think that's one reason why we should pursue them. But the bigger reason is the war can't end without a peace plan. That's a point that Russian dissent made this morning in their, their Substack newsletter. I 100% agree with them on that. Um, so what that peace plan exactly would look like, what it will be, um, I don't know the answer to that. I know that there's a lot of strong feelings in Ukraine that they not return uh, territory conquered by Russia. I know Russia feels the same way, and on the surface it appears that those two positions are simply uh, irreconcilable. However, we have to ask ourselves this question. You know, how long do, we, do each side really have to keep up fighting uh, at a level necessary to achieve their war aims? if their capacity to fight drops below the level they need in order to achieve their war aims, then no one will be able to achieve a clear victory, but no one will be able to get out of the fight either. 
uh, that would mean a long-term, year-in, year-out, you know, sort of a disastrous slog like we already have seen in Crimea because there's been fighting there since 2014, uh, just on a larger scale. And, and I would argue the lar- longer that goes on, the greater the chances of war expanding beyond Ukraine's borders uh, to something that might involve a direct confrontation between Russia and NATO, well, that's bad. The longer it drags on, the more the chances that there could be uh, an actual use of nuclear weapons, and that's bad. And so I think that those are other reasons that we should consider or we should get behind an effort to bring an end to this conflict diplomatically. Uh, What would that look like? Well, the first thing you would have to do is arrange a ceasefire. You would have to get Russia and Ukraine to agree to a ceasefire so that diplomacy has some room to work. Because right now, I don't think there is much. But if you get a ceasefire and you can get uh, diplomats, and when I say diplomats, I do not mean representatives. We need to get Putin himself and Zelensky himself to talk to each other at the table to negotiate. That's what we need to do, I think. Uh, And the reason for that is because whether they publicly admit it or not, there are many reasons for both countries to want to end the war. For Russia, they're not winning. Whether they, they'll never admit it publicly, but they, I think internally, they, at least there's a, a degree of recognition on that. They're not winning, and so that, that's the reason why we want to stop that. So what I'm saying there is there's something to be gained from negotiating, whether or not those actual negotiations successfully lead to anything, any type of uh, permanent resolution. It, it could take many different rounds. I mean, there could be there could be six, seven, who knows how many different rounds of negotiations uh, and, and ceasefires before we finally get to uh, an agreement that would uh, that would end the fighting. Um, I would tell the Ukrainians, you know, think about how many lives you could save um, if we ended if we ended this war sooner. You could start rebuilding Ukraine instead of reloading for another round of conflict. And and I would tell them we would pressure the Russians. The United States should. We should pressure Russia to accept terms that are more favorable to Ukraine because Russia started this. Um, that's that's at the outset. So I think we would we would tell, say to the Ukrainians, look, we're you know we're on your side. Uh, we'll pressure the Russians to accept favorable terms to Ukraine. To the Russians, I would say, if you agree to sit down, we'll stop sending weapons for the duration of those uh, those talks. So we do have some leverage uh, in getting the the key players to the table and getting them to talk to each other and to uh, to try to bring this thing to an end. Because I think that's really in the interest of all parties, including the United States, uh, is to see this conflict ended with a, with a peaceful resolution rather than continuing a fight that's going to drag on for who knows how many years. And each time, each year it does, it brings us closer to an open conflict with Russia and NATO or an, uh, the actual use of nuclear weapons. Um, so I think now is a, is a time to press for negotiations, to press for a ceasefire, and to begin the attempt diplomatically to bring the war in Ukraine to a close. It may not work the first time. It may not work the second time. It may not work the third, fourth, or fifth time. That's the nature of diplomacy. But the point is you keep trying. You have to. We have an obligation to do that because one thing we've learned from Iraq and Afghanistan is anytime someone tells you that it's gotten as bad as it can get and it can't get any worse, they are dead wrong. It can always, always get worse. It can always get worse. Uh, and so we have an opportunity to, even though we didn't ask for it and didn't expect it, and it came in a very unusual way, um, there's still an opportunity here to start the diplomatic process and to try to begin the process of bringing the war 
uh, in Ukraine to an end. I understand uh, the frustration on the part of critics who want to see Vladimir Putin tried for war crimes. I personally don't think that will ever happen, although I agree that there's probably enough evidence to do it. I don't think it'll ever happen, and for a lot of reasons, uh, not least of which is Russia is a nuclear power and The Hague isn't. So in just terms of raw force, I don't think that's going to work. I do think, however, that the Russian people are certainly capable of removing Vladimir Putin from office. They got rid of the czars, they got rid of the Soviet Union, and they can certainly get rid of him. And so I think that negotiations might help to bring that outcome about eventually, um, maybe peacefully, maybe not peacefully. Russia is very difficult to predict, you know, and how the Russian people respond to last weekend's events is really going to be the, the key element in determining which path Russia takes as it goes forward uh, in the future. I don't know what the Russian people are going to do. I don't know how they're going to respond to this, but it's certainly something we need to pay attention to. And I hope that our own leaders in Washington and our European allies are already thinking about, you know, what would happen if there was a regime change within Russia and how we would handle that. And by the way, the same possibility exists for Ukraine. Um, you know, just because we see Zelensky on TV a lot doesn't mean that he'll be president tomorrow. Um, it's a war zone. Anything could happen. So worst case scenario, you know, the regimes in Russia and Kiev collapse. And then you've got chaos on, you know, one-sixth of the land area of the world, which is awash in armed groups and nuclear weapons. I don't think that's an outcome anyone wants. So while we still have two regimes there, even though one of them, uh, I, I accept the, criti the critics, um, and that was another point General Hurtling made this morning. You know, he said, well, if we negotiate with Putin, we're essentially negotiating with it with a terrorist regime. I understand the, I understand the, the point behind that. But the reality is, you know, we don't get to pick and choose um, the reality of our situation. We have to face, we can't, we can't just um, ignore the reality of it. And the reality is we need to bring this war to a close and that doing that might be the best way to hold Putin accountable. Uh, and that's, that's the point I wanted. That was my response. Like, I get the, the desire to hold him accountable. He should be held accountable. But I think the best way to do that is to bring the war to a close. And so that process can start. So that's another reason why I would support, um, I, would, I would say we need to be opening negotiations. I haven't seen that anyone in the Biden administration has, is doing that or moving in that direction, so I hope that they will start moving in that direction or they're going to miss an opportunity, and it's one that may not come again. You know, 2024 is an election year for Russia and the United States. Both countries are going to, are going to have presidential elections next year. Now, it may be a foregone conclusion in Russia that Putin wins, but then again, it may not be. And so I think that's when we're, when I mentioned earlier how the Russian people respond to this, I think that may be when we really see the, um, the outcome of this in terms of popular, pop, excuse me, uh, popular opinion, public opinion in Russia uh, is next year. It could come sooner, but if we don't see anything, any, any discernible signs before then, I think next year we'll definitely get a sense for, for how the Russian people um, respond or what they've thought of the events of the past couple of days. Here in the United States, I think that the candidates running should make it their top foreign policy priority to bring an end to the war in Ukraine peacefully and diplomatically. That doesn't mean uh, that we have to stop supporting Ukraine in their fight against uh, the Russian military. 
permanently, but it does mean that we could we could accept pauses in the fighting in order to allow negotiations to take place. So I hope that that's what the leading candidates will argue for and will get behind as we approach the uh, the 2024 election cycle. There's a lot of unknowns, though. Um, there's a lot of things that are happening that we can't see or hear from where we are. You know, when you're looking at a situation 8,000 miles away through a straw, you only get to see a very small part of it. And so there's many things happening that, that aren't visible or that aren't known to the public or me or anyone that's trying to analyze the situation. So what I would say is going forward, um, anything could happen. And if, if we see more dramatic events taking place within Russia, it would not surprise me. I don't know what those might be, but I would hope that everyone that, that pays attention to this kind of thing would be on the lookout for that and that our leaders are thinking about what, how they would handle um, a regime change in Russia and, and that they would have plans in place to be ready for that um, should it come to pass. So that's really all I wanted to talk about uh, today. I thank everybody for listening, and I hope you have a great day. Take care. Come <laughs> on!